Hi, it's Ricky DeRiz, and welcome to the first ever Mind That Ego podcast. I'm willing to bet if there's suffering, there's an underlying attachment or craving somewhere. And that is actually good news, because once we get that, then psychological pain becomes feedback. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce a very special guest for this show. Roger Walsh is a professor of psychiatry, philosophy and anthropology at the University of California. He's also a spiritual practitioner and has written books including Paths Beyond the Ego, The World of Shamanism and Essential Spirituality, the latter being the topic for today. Well, Roger, welcome to the Mind That Ego podcast and thanks a lot for taking the time to be the first ever guest on the show. Well, thank you very much for the invitation and thank you for uh, the nice uh, words you've had to say about uh, the book Essential Spirituality, which I understand we'll be talking about today. So so thank you too. Yeah, of course. And, and it's, it's been a real pleasure for me to be able to kind of share the impact the book has had. It's a very personal book to me. And I think it's a really important book. I think it's a book that has a lot of potential to really reach a lot of people that at the moment are perhaps even unaware of what spirituality is. I know in my personal experience, there's a lot of, of misunderstanding with friends and, and people close to me. And I feel like this book really clears it up. And it was, um, yeah, it was very important to me. So it's, it's exciting to get the, the opportunity to, to discuss it. So just to begin, it'd be really good to get some some background on your transition into discovering spirituality, because you note in the book that in your teens, science was your God, and that <laughs> you, you, were, you were more of an atheist, and you kind of, you almost had a belief system based around evidence and factual uh, science. So what was the transition from that mindset into one of wanting to discover and explore spirituality? Well, it was, a, <laughs> it was actually a pretty challenging transition. As you said, uh, when I was growing up, uh, science was pretty much my God. I, I trained uh, as both an MD and a PhD, getting a PhD in neuroscience, and thought I would spend my life uh, working in a, in a laboratory, happily doing research of a conventional neuroscientific t- type. But uh, I had the good fortune of uh, going through medical school in Australia and then being extremely fortunate to uh, be invited to come to Stanford University in California, uh, the United States, to do a postdoc psychiatry clinical training. And as part of my training there, I was doing psychotherapy on people, but <laughs> I wasn't terribly convinced it worked. And actually, at that stage of my career, when I was doing it on people, <laughs> probably didn't work so well. <laughs> But I felt I had this moral obligation to try it myself. And I had the extremely good fortune of going into therapy with a most remarkable man, a, a truly recognized as a master therapist by the name of Jim Bugenthal, who was very interpersonally sensitive. And he would was able to give feedback about my own experiences and what was going on in me that I wasn't even aware of. So I would say something and he'd respond by saying, you know, Roger, when you said that, I noticed you kind of 
pulled away from me and you contracted a little bit and your voice lowered. And my response would be, what are you, hell are you talking about? <laughs> and, but then over time, I began to realize that as he pointed to these things, there are actually uh, different emotions that were coming up that I'd been unaware of, maybe images, fantasies, thoughts that had previously been pre-conscious. And effectively, it was like being hooked up to a human biofeedback machine and being trained to be aware of my own experience to a degree and with a, a heightened sensitivity that I hadn't even known was possible. And as this developed over a period of months, I gradually became aware that there was an inner universe of subjective experience, of emotions, of images, of, of thoughts, of fantasies that I'd been almost completely out of touch with. And the more I opened to this, the more I explored with Jim Bugenthal's help, the more I began to feel that there was an inner universe as vast and mysterious as the outer, and that I'd spent my entire life unaware of it. It was almost like I'd lived my entire life on the top six inches of a wave on top of an inner ocean that I didn't know existed. Mm. And it just blew me away and that I could have been so out of touch with my own experience. and. And even more amazingly, as I looked around the culture with this newfound awareness, I recognized that that's the way most people live. It wasn't unusual. It wasn't rare. But most of us are really out of touch with our own inner experience. And that we live cut off from our inner depths, our inner resources, our inner wisdom, so much of, our, of the remarkable capacities and possibilities within us. And having made that discovery in psychotherapy, then of course I was very interested to continue that exploration. So I, you know, being in California, <laughs> there were a lot of possible things one could do to explore <laughs> one's inner world and uh, you name it, I did it. And gradually I found myself gravitating to practices like meditation and chanting and yoga. I was really puzzled why, because at that time I thought religion was the opium of the masses, a primitive, a relic of primitive thinking, and yet these practices seemed to be helpful, and I couldn't figure out, well, how can primitive, defensive practices be helpful? And there was literally one moment that I was walking across my living room when I realized that that behind the conventional religious institutions, far less known and very different from the rituals and myths that dominate much of conventional religion, were a variety of practices, a kind of inner technology or technology of the mind for training the mind and the heart to cultivate this, the insights and capacities and virtues such as love and compassion and, and wisdom uh, that the great sages had discovered and that one could actually do these practices and cultivate these qualities mm. and become a little, you know, and develop them to some degree. And so that was just a remarkable and life-transforming insight for me. And once I 
recognize that, then I began to dive deeply into these practices, and they changed my life and gave me an, you know, a, a whole different appreciation of what religion and spiritual practices can be, far different from the, the primitive and even pathological uh, mm. ways I'd thought of religion before. And it's it's really interesting because that, that mirrors um, a lot of of my experiences in terms of the, I guess, initial misconception of religion and religion as more dogma and kind of a set of rules and structures. To, I guess, the, uh, the really important thing I pick up on is this idea of direct experience and yeah. being able to test for yourself and being able to actually have tools and practices that you can use and you can have an experience with something that feels very much outside of yourself rather than, um, I believe you, you note it as untested faith or proof by authority versus tested faith. Yes. Um, yeah, so that's certainly... It, kind of mirrors, mirrors some of my experience as well, which is, which is really interesting. Yes, and I think you made, made a very important distinction there, uh, Ricky, between uh, so much of conventional religion, not all of it, of course, but so much, which centers around dogma and, a, and believing a narrative. If you believe, mm -hmm. believe a narrative, you believe the particular story, you're saved, and if you don't, you're not. And... It's so different from post-conventional religion, uh, which centers around not a story and belief, but rather centers around a practice, a, a technology, a, a way in which one can mm. actually cultivate one, one's heart and mind. And those are very, very different kinds of religion. And yet, as you implied, our culture has no understanding of that difference. So you had to discover that difference for yourself. I had to discover it for myself. And most people have to discover it for, mm. ourselves, for themselves. Um, and one, one thing I found also fascinating, and it's a question that is, has been seared into my brain since I, I experienced this. But I actually picked up your book before I, I started meditating. And it didn't really resonate with me at all. The words didn't didn't catch me, and I felt quite, I guess, disconnected from it. And it was only after I began, so I used the Headspace app, and I started meditating daily. And I returned to the book, and it was completely different. It was a completely different experience. And one big thing for me is trying to understand this switch. And I, I guess some explanation comes from moving beyond a concept or like an intellectual understanding of here's an idea I have to believe in or I have to reject to test this out and experience it. And I, and for me, it, I know that you had the therapy and then went into meditation. It kind of was the opposite way around where the meditation opened the door to making sense to the words that you wrote and then everything else I kind of discovered around that. Yeah, and I, th I think that's a very important uh, idea you're pointing to there, Ricky, which is that our experience sets the limits of our understanding. And before we have so 
own personal experience in any field, in any arena. You know, if you, if, you know, I'm colorblind. I can never, I'll never understand what you and other people really mean when you say you talk about the, you know, a rainbow. Mm. <laughs> and, and I just don't have that experience. So I can hear you or other people talking about, you know, these multiple colors you see, but it, it doesn't really have much meaning for me. So in the same way, um, uh, our inner experience, our contemplative experience, sets the limits for our understanding of ideas about uh, about our inner world and, mm. and spiritual experience, religious experience. And this is actually an ancient, uh, a venerable idea. The great philosopher Immanuel Kant spoke of empty concepts and blind experience. And empty concepts, uh, they're just ideas, mm. but because we don't have uh, the experiential base for giving them real meaning and significance, they're kind of just empty. They're empty words. You know, it might be nice words, but they're still kind of empty. But on the other hand, once you have some experience, then the concepts can be very valuable. The ideas can enrich the concepts, and that's what he meant by blind experience. We can all have experiences, but if we don't reflect on them, think about them, read about them, then they never become as rich or as meaningful or as deep as when we combine our own experience with, say, uh, a map or a framework or a, mm. some ideas which enrich it. Absolutely. And, and another element of, of my practice that always kind of blows my mind is frequently... I experience and then exactly as you say I kind of find the map and find the framework and that to me was a real it had a real kind of transformative effect to switch it on its head and have experience that I then could find meaning in either Buddhism or even Christianity or something like the the concepts you mentioned in the book but I'd not discovered the concept before having this experience and it was only after I realized this kind of shared commonality of spirituality which is exactly what you touch upon um, and you mentioned the before really getting into the seven central practices you mentioned the perennial philosophy and four crucial claims that have endured could you maybe explain a little bit about those Sure. Well, let's see if I can remember them. <laughs> maybe you. Can, <laughs> it's a good test. It's been a while. <laughs> maybe you can uh, remind me if I don't. I think uh, the idea of a perennial philosophy is one which has been around for a while, and it's not so accepted in academia because uh, academia, academics tend to be very air-splitting and cautious and careful, and that that's fine in its place. But mm. as a as a general idea, it's a useful framework. And the idea behind the perennial philosophy is that if you look across the world's different wisdom traditions, religions, philosophies, uh, in the deeper aspects, you find certain common core elements. And Aldous Huxley, the great uh, writer and novelist, distilled those out and as into four general principles. One, I think, saying that... Uh, but the physical is not the only realm. There's another realm of 
uh, of awareness, of experience, of uh, uh, some sort of transcendent experience. And second, that we partake, as human beings, partake of both of that and the physical, of course. So mm. we're both we're kind of like amphibians. We potentially have access both to uh, the outer physical world and an inner world of, of experience which can become very deep, very profound, very transcendent. The third, is, the third idea of the perennial philosophy is an ethical one that opening to realizing, um, becoming immersed in this transcendent realm of, call it what you will, consciousness, mind with a capital M, spirit, Tao, God, Buddha nature. And I'm not saying those are exactly the same, but these are different words from different traditions which point to that transcendent transcendent something. Uh, The third idea of the perennial philosophy is that that opening to that is really one of the most important things we can do in life. and uh, uh, let's see, what is the fourth? Ricky, can you remind me? You, you've done incredibly well up to this point. I was really, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I was very impressed. What's the fourth? <laughs> uh, so the, yeah, so the third one is our ability to recognize the divine spark and its right. source, uh, um, yeah. and to test it for ourselves. Yeah. And then the fourth is that realizing the nature is is the highest goal. So that is, ah. yeah, the 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 biggest. I guess goal that we can we can I don't know if attain is is the right word but strive for or practice on and and cultivate is this realization. Yes, and uh, we'll get to this general topic. But one thing that sometimes comes up for people when they hear the idea that awakening, enlightenment, salvation, satori, lots of different names from lots of different traditions. is the most important thing in life. They think, well, that's kind of selfish. That's what about helping the world? But as we'll talk about, mm. one of the things that comes with that kind of opening is a heightened sensitivity to and compassion for all other people and the recognition that one is not just a little skin-bound ego. One actually uh, is deeply connected to even one with other people, other creatures, all life. And that so compassion arises as a natural response. We'll probably get into that when we look at the seven practices. Yeah, of course, of course. And I think it's it's such such an important point of this fear of being selfish. And that's been kind of instilled in us. And I think in some ways you you can fear that um, I think you know even fear in our potential or being seen as prideful or kind of almost narcissistic to pursue spirituality in that sense. Yeah, it's a very common and, and it's a very idealistic idea, but it is it comes out of a, um, a lack of appreciation of what real spirit, real awakening or realization or enlightenment or, or or even growth in that direction does mm. because sooner or later one finds that 
you can't do the practices for yourself alone. If you're doing it for yourself alone, you're just aggrandizing your ego rather than yeah. re- releasing and transcending it. So sooner or later, you re- begin to realize, oh, this isn't about me. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, so, but but the concern about uh, about being selfish is a very uh, much to be respected ideal. Yeah, and I, and I so I guess right. I hope, and the the intention of this this podcast as well is to clear up some of those those misconceptions with this framework. Right. Um, so, just briefly before going in, there are a few metaphors that you use in terms of the, the spiritual impact that can, or the impact that spirituality can have on your life. I picked out a few, um, such as dehypnosis, so freeing us from convention and a way of living that is a bit more in the head and not as connected to either the transcendent, the heart or intuition. Um, An uncovering process, which is this idea that all of these qualities of love and compassion are within us anyway. It's not something we attain. We kind of move beyond the muddiness of the mind and discover that they've been there the whole time. Um, And then wholeness, which is related to that. So the idea that spirituality can kind of heal and, and, and make us whole or return to some form of wholeness. Um, the last one I've just picked out, and I know there were a few more, is death and rebirth, which is something I'd like to discuss a little later on. There's a quote there that I, I really love about self-image and how spirituality makes us strong enough to be willing to die. Um, and you quote there that out of the ashes of the ego arises a phoenix-like a new self-image which will die and be reborn repeatedly until there is no self-image left to die and only the deathless remains. That's such a, for me, such a powerful image of the process of moving beyond the mind into the spirit kind of realm and how your self-image, which was quite limited and you kind of limited your potential and your ability to, to do good and to serve others, disintegrates and then you kind of un- unleash this potential yeah and and it can be a very powerful process this this idea of death and rebirth is a is a an ancient theme going all the way back to the shamanic tradition which probably goes back for perhaps tens of thousands of years but the general idea is that as we open ourselves to our potentials as we grow, as we mature, as we develop, as we awaken, that the old image we held of ourselves, the old self-concept, self-representation, has to grow and expand to encompass the larger self we become. And it can be a slow, gradual adjustment, but sometimes it needs to be, the transformations we're undergoing are so dramatic that the self-image literally has to, it it cracks, it fractures, Mm -hmm. it disintegrates. And when that happens, because we identify with our self-image, because one of the great mistakes we make in life is mistaking the image of ourself for our true self, Mm-hmm. When the self-image deconstructs, it feels like a death. It feels like we're going to die. And it can be, um, the first time it happens, it can be very terrifying. 
because it literally feels like one is is dying. And if people don't have any understanding of it, or if they haven't done enough in the preparation, that can be very painful. And of course, uh, an example in our own times is that of uh, people who do, for example, strong psychedelics without adequate yeah. preparation. That can very much intensify psychological processes and result in death-rebirth experience, which uh, can be very transformative and valuable, but if people don't know, don't have a framework for understanding what's happening to them, it can also be very terrifying. And uh, so, again, preparation is important, practice is important, and when, when understood, then that death-rebirth process becomes a a liberation, a freedom from one's mm. previous constrictions and limiting beliefs, an opening to deeper and fuller possibilities, and can be quite ecstatic. So, as I, like you, having started from a very skeptical attitude towards religion, as I began actually doing contemplative practices like Christian contemplation, meditation, Taoist yoga, you name it, I experimented with it, I eventually became very intrigued by some commonalities and began to wonder, well, you know, here are some of the greatest minds and hearts that have ever landed on the planet. What do they think are the core qualities that we as human beings need to cultivate if we're to reach the fullness of our potentials, if we're to live as fully and richly and helpfully as we possibly can, and if we're to realize our true nature. And over a period of years, I came to uh, see that there were indeed a number of qualities of heart and mind that the different sages from different traditions seem to emphasize. And it took a period of years, but over time it, it winnowed out as seven core qualities of heart and mind. And in each of the great traditions, one finds practices to actually cultivate these. So the seven qualities of heart and mind were, I won't do them in the order of the book necessarily here, but first is an ethical foundation that we really, that ethics properly understood is really a very profound uh, practice for oneself yeah. as well as for others. Second is transforming one's emotions, reducing things like fear and anger and, and hatred and cultivating qualities like love and compassion. Third is, uh, that's really important, is to transform one's motivation, uh, reducing addictive cravings and reactive aversion and hatred and instead cultivating qualities of uh, uh, the things that really matter in life. And then the fourth quality that they all emphasized was important was to be able to concentrate the mind, and, to, and with concentration comes calm and peace. Uh, the fifth was a, a refining of perception awareness so that we gradually become more sensitive both to the outer world, to other people, and to our own inner experience. And then uh, six is developing wisdom, deep insight and understanding about oneself and life. 
And finally, what they all culm- all these practices culminate in is service and contribution to others. So we don't practice for ourselves alone, but rather practice is a is a, an enlightened self-interest in, in which we mm-hmm. are drawn to serving and helping others, not as sacrifice, but rather by recognition that it's a win-win situation. So those are the seven practices, seven qualities of heart and mind, and the seven practices that emerged over a period of years as I was doing these practices and doing pretty intensive study across uh, religious traditions and philosophies. There was um, a way, a way that you described as well these practices, which I thought was was beautiful, and it was this idea of essentially using these these seven practices that you mentioned to kind of cultivate qualities that we can then eventually transfer into the outer world and kind of share through our behavior, through our actions. Um, I thought that was a really nice way of, of identifying the, the importance, I guess, of being able to highlight these practices and bring it all together into something you can present to the world. Um, what I'll do, because I've got it in the order of the book, um, and the first one there is is the one on transforming your motivation from reducing craving and finding your soul's desire. So should we start with that one to discuss? Sure, yeah. Um, and the first the first part of that is the secret of happiness, which is, of course, something we all kind of um, try and chase and attain in our own different ways. And you note how spiritual practice can open the door to bliss, which is infinitely more profound and satisfying than the feeling of central pleasures. So how would you, I guess, describe this um, idea of how spiritual practice offers something more than what we may conventionally view as happiness? Yeah, it's a crucial question because our conventional culture really focuses around uh, physical reward, sometimes thought of as the physical force and the money, power, prestige, and sex as, as you know, what's really worth pursuing in life. Mm. And there's no, you know, it's not to deny that those can be, uh, can be very important, very pleasurable, part of a full life. Uh, but it's, Christ- the, the, the great contemplative traditions have been clear for thousands of years and Interestingly, contemporary scientific research is now getting clear that, for example, uh, making more and more money does not make for more and more satisfaction. There's a kind of uh, decreasing rewards uh, that comes with money. Now, we need to balance this by saying, yes, we absolutely need to get people out of poverty. Mm -hmm. There's a suffering of deprivation, which money and resources alleviate and if you don't have sufficient resources for you and your family to live adequately then there's that brings deep suffering so we need to acknowledge that but what contemplatives have said for millennia and researchers are now also saying is that above a certain minimum once you've got a, you know, enough to live on you know comfortably more and more money does not make for more and more happiness so it's just interesting to see that our culture with its fixation on wealth and acquisition and consumerism 
all fueled and reinforced by an enormous multi-billion dollar advertising industry, is really leading us down a, a, a painful path. And if we look around the world, we see that uh, you know, the, the emphasis on consumption is not making for particularly enormous amounts of individual well-being and certainly destroying our planet at the same time. So the general idea, just extrapolating from, from money to all things physical, is that it's possible to get preoccupied and obsessed with things like with the physical foursome of money or power or status or sex. And again, not to emphasize any of those can be very pleasurable in the, when balanced. But when, they, when we fall into the trap of believing these are the only pleasure, pleasures or even the most important ones, we overlook the importance of more subtle, more profound, more meaningful motives, you know, think love, compassion, care, mm. empathy, uh, self-discovery, self-actualization, self-transcendence, things that are more subjective and interior or more relational, part of, part of deep, intimate relationship. And what is, again, uh, what's been told to us by wise people for thousands of years, and now the research is showing, is, for example, these, some of these things are just more, more deeply satisfying than getting another car or another goodie is. Um, so uh, the emphasis here is probably on, on, balance, uh, in, on a couple of things. One is recognizing that there's more to us and to life than just the physical acquisitions. Uh, and second, that these uh, these so-called higher-order motives are actually more profound and more satisfying, and that we can, you know, <laughs> advertisers are fond of telling us that you can have it all. What they don't tell mm -hmm. us is that having it all isn't enough. You can yeah. have a lot yeah. of goodies and still be miserable. And as a you know, as a mental health professional and psychiatrist, I just have seen a lot of people in my time who seem to have it all in terms of a conventional dream. But you know, if they don't have loving relationships, if they haven't haven't uh, looked at their own experience, actualized themselves, etc., they can be miserable. This is a huge, huge realization as well. And this idea that well, the understanding that our culture, the capitalist culture and economic um, drive of, of money and attaining things, it's not set up for our well-being and it profits from people who feel like they're lacking and feel like they need to get something outside of themselves and to invest their money in things, in materialistic items. Um, so I think that's a really interesting point about how the advertising industry, I guess, exploit our inner nature to to seek something more, to seek happiness or to seek fulfillment. But they kind of funnel it in a, a superficial way. Um, yeah, sometimes those are called substitute gratifications. They, mm. they, they're gratifications for a, 
for a sense of lack or deficiency, but they're not what we really want. They're not what most deeply satisfies. And you know, the this is a really integral, and it's and it's something that's been integral for my practice as well. The idea of craving and attachment, because as you as you identify, these things within themselves aren't inherently bad, and desiring them isn't necessarily bad. It's only when we become attached and we crave them that there's a cause of suffering. I think in the the book you say that the amount of suffering in our lives reflects the gap between what we crave and what we have. And the trouble is, I think partly because of culture and because of advertising, often we seek perfection. And if we're seeking perfection, that amount of suffering and distance from what we believe will bring us happiness causes even greater suffering to an extent. Yeah, well said. And the reality is we're all human. We're all fallible. We all make mistakes. And perfection is, <laughs> is uh, you know, it's just not, part, not the way we as human beings are or operate. What would the key takeaway be for being balanced in an approach to desiring certain things whilst not becoming attached to them? Well, to, uh, let's be brutally frank. It's it's tricky for all of us to honor our desires and not get attached or to crave what we want. Uh, but there's an important distinction, and that is if we simply want something, if we have a simple desire, then if we get it, wonderful. If we don't, well, yeah, that's a pity. But if we crave something, if we're attached to it, if we're addicted to it, if we don't get it, we suffer. Mm. And that's the core distinction. And it's a very interesting practice. Anytime we're pained, anytime we have mental suffering of any kind, to look for the underlying craving. And I'm willing to bet if there's suffering, there's an underlying attachment or craving somewhere. And that is actually good news because once we get that, then psychological pain becomes feedback. Psychological pains, you know, we tend automatically with psychological pain to want to repress it or stuff it out of awareness. But psychological pain is like physical pain. It's a feedback system. It's saying, pay attention. There's a pathology, a problem here that needs to be remedied. Mm. And when we get that, then you know, psychological pain shifts from being something to be just stuffed out of awareness to something that, oh, I need to pay attention to this. I need to find out what the craving is. I need to let it go. And then it's then the pain is a, a feedback signal, a call to mm. greater health and well-being. And that's a very it's an inspiring and, and quite a, a relieving way of looking at emotional pain as well and, and tapping into, I guess, this understanding that there's an intelligence almost beyond our thoughts that sometimes communicates with us in various ways. And if you can tap into that and see what those messages are and where those cravings are, that's a, a very um, profound realization, I guess. Indeed. And uh, it, it just shifts things dramatically. You also, you, you note in the book, what I found was really, really interesting, the idea of almost fearing giving up attachments and how 
we feel like without that, we might not be motivated. But your experience was actually the opposite. And when you did start to relinquish, you found that you had a little more freedom and energy from that. Yeah, as long as we crave something, then, then, well, there are a couple of things here. As long as we crave something, we think think that if we give up the craving, we won't get what we <laughs> what we crave, <laughs> which may be true. Uh, it's only after we begin to let it let the craving go that we realize, oh, uh, you know, then yeah, it's not going to be painful to let it go. But there's a deeper problem and that is a lot of us don't trust ourselves we suffer from a fundamental lack of self-trust and we believe that without our cravings we wouldn't be motivated we'd be apathetic lethargic never amount to anything and yet it's such a relief to find that as we let go our cravings we actually the energy that was tied up in them is becomes available Mm. And we found we are, find we are motivated, motivate, but motivated by more benevolent uh, desires or motives, you know, such as to learn, to grow, to heal, to help. Uh, so it turns out we do not need our cravings in the way we think we do. And with the the source of of craving and where this desire to connect or desire to to find something that we feel we're lacking. Um, you note in the book a phrase um, I note here is divine homesickness, which I really like, this idea that our inherent nature is to connect and often cravings are almost a misdirection of this desire to connect to something bigger than ourselves. Yeah. Um, that, and the idea which is particularly attributed uh, con uh, connected to the work of Ken Wilber, who's a remarkable uh, scholar and thinker around some of these very profound topics and is a synthesizer of an enormous amount of information, is that mm, a lot of times what we're trying to get are actually substitute gratifications. Then, you know, what we really want is to awaken to our true nature, to our true identity, to, to recognize ourselves and become what we fully and truly are. And yet that gets subverted at different developmental stages into our current understanding of what, it, what we think we want, which is usually what mm -hmm. the culture tells us we want. And I guess the... the the second part of this um, section as well, in terms of finding your soul's desire, is when we move beyond that, we we notice the deeper aspect of mind and, and start to uncover some of our potential as well. Indeed, yeah, that's one of the beauties of doing inner work, of having a contemplative practice. And it's uh, the more we clear away the junk mm. <laughs> in our minds, uh, then the more deeply we see into ourselves and the more we recognize that we are far more than we thought. Yeah. And I, I guess that, that leads on nicely to, to the second practice, which is to cultivate emotional wisdom, uh, to heal your heart and learn to love. Now, you talk about love here quite a bit as being such an integral and essentially divine emotion, 
energy force, however, however to label it. I saw there was a, a note of referring to these as emotions of the soul, which I thought was was beautiful, and they're almost beyond the troubling emotions that we experience from the mind. Uh, an important factor there, and this is actually a topic that I've delved into quite quite deeply because it was a big source of craving and attachment for me. But it was a separation between false love or romantic love and true love. Mm-hmm. And I know how you say one of the greatest tragedies of our time is that our culture has confused love with addiction and also dependency. Could you maybe say um, a little on the, the distinction between true love and false love? Sure. And um, maybe just to give the background here, um, in the book Essential Spirituality, the seven central practices, the second of the key practices that so many sages recommend is the transformation of our emotions, the reduction of painful, destructive emotions like fear and anger and jealousy, and the cultivation of positive ones like love and compassion and joy. And the general understanding is that your advice, wisdom, is that those painful, destructive emotions are destructive to both us and others, whereas the positive, uh, benevolent emotions such as love and compassion and joy uh, benefit not only us but others as well. And so there are practices, and the book Essential Spirituality lays them out for the cultivation of those positive emotions and the reduction of of the painful ones. And one of the things that one of the emotions that, of course, is emphasized across traditions is love. Mm. But one of the things that becomes very apparent very quickly as you start to look across uh, different contemplative traditions is that their idea of love is much more, uh, much bigger, more expansive, more inclusive, uh, profound than our culture, Hollywood-driven ideas of love. And in our culture, we have been given to think that love is something you, that primarily occurs in a romantic relationship or maybe in family uh, relationships, parent-child, for example. Um, and that romantic love is the norm, the height of what love can be. Yet if you think about... <laughs> Think about, or if you turn on the radio and listen to a quote's love song, what you hear yeah. are phrases like, I can't live without you, mm. I'm losing sleep, I keep thinking about you, it's, you know, I, I get up, I get, go crazy when you're not available, etc. Those are the symptoms of, of addiction. And our culture is mis- mistaken a kind of immature romantic love for the fullness of what love can be. And there's no question whatsoever that romantic love can be wonderful and inspiring and, and intense and transporting. Uh, yet, often romantic love is mixed in with uh, a fulfillment of our insecurities, a emphasis on you, know, you satisfying me, uh, um, it's, uh, it, it becomes very, it comes out of and expresses a kind of neediness, 
Mm. Whereas some of the deeper kinds of love, the kinds of love advocated and, and supported by contemplative practices the world over, is a more, um, it's a more encompassing love. It's what in the West uh, Christianity was traditionally known as agape, uh, which is uh, an unselfish, loving concern and care for uh, any, larger numbers of people or it can potentially include larger numbers of people and it can be it comes out of a care and concern for the well-being of the others primarily rather than what I can get out of it in me owning you so these are very different and uh, we don't have a lot of uh, agape does not get a lot of press in our culture mm-hmm. unfortunately and it, and it is I guess the difference between as you mentioned conditions and conditional and unconditional love and being yes. able to to give without expectation i think is actually really difficult but also so rewarding to be able to not have so many expectations linked to attainment or this love is for that one person and it's very um yes yeah, a sense of dependency and, and addiction um i notice so in in addition to identifying and cultivating true love, which is such a powerful and profound state or emotion or even something we can tap into beyond ourselves, on the other side, you have challenging emotions and difficult emotions. And you know three um, unskilled, let's call them unskilled responses to difficult emotions, which include judgment, ignoring or pushing away, or indulgence and I guess from from my perspective and from the work that I have applied to myself and also with clients as well it becomes clear to me that spirituality is is arguably the most effective tool in managing emotions and particularly managing troubling emotions is that something you'd agree with in terms of emotional management uh, well, I think there are differences between people. For some people, uh, contemplative practices of one kind or another can be the most effective. For other people, it may be psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are multiple ways of working with emotions, and and people differ. Sometimes some people can learn a lot from being in a, you know, say a, a group of peers who are committed to learning and growing. Uh, sometimes it, one can work with painful painful emotions in a romantic relationship, although that can be very challenging. Uh, romantic relationships tend to bring up a, lots of powerful emotions to work yeah. with. But if there's a shared agreement in the relationship to use the relationship for learning and growth, then it is possible to use to to have those emotions come up and to uh, even difficult ones to reflect on them together and to, and to get help in releasing them. So I, I'd say you know that there are a lot of different approaches to working with difficult emotions. Some people can work with them you know, to some degree by themselves. Some people, most of us really need help of one kind or another. And uh, each of us has the kind of challenge of finding what really works for me at this time with this emotion. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess it's, it's, it's finding what works personally for people and, and taking even elements from loads of different sources. Because I know for me, for example, I've used cognitive behavioral therapy and meditation and some psychoanalysis and kind of combined them all into this whirlpool of <laughs> kind of understanding that has really helped with my mm. struggles with depression and anxiety. Uh-huh. Um, so in terms of with, with the, the emotions, so we also have fear and, and anger as, as really strong emotions that we are all held by to some extent. And I guess here you note in the book about the um, awareness or when you, you bring awareness to the inner world, to the inner universe, that in itself is self-healing. And we can kind of begin to notice things such as fear aren't necessarily a response to our environment, but actually a response to the thoughts and the fantasies that we are experiencing in our inner world at that time. Yeah, I'm not sure I ever even to add to that. I think, uh, you know, nice comment. So another element of emotional management is before you can, you can attain or feel as comfortable as possible in the present or to fully live in the present, you, it's, it's important to cultivate and to relinquish resentments or things that are maybe keeping you stuck in the past. And forgiveness is a big part of that, as is gratitude. And you notice the difference between forgiving to, I guess, let go of the past and gratitude to be grateful for what you're experiencing in the future. Um, how would you, I guess my question there would be, how would you make a shift in mindset towards focusing on gratitude and moving away from a sense of lack? Uh, well, as with all things, gratitude is a practice, and it's really a wonderful practice. And let me recommend... Uh, uh, a wonderful website by Brother David Stendelrost, who's a, a monk and a, just a wonderful human being. Uh, he, his, his website is gratitude.org, and it has some wonderful information and practices on the whole topic of gratitude. So he's really a pioneer in this area. And of course, there's a section in the book, Essential Spirituality, on it. So how do we, how do we develop gratitude? Well, again, it's a practice, so we start with uh, getting some information about it, finding out that getting finding out that its benefits, why it's worth doing, and then look at some specific uh, practices to develop it. Um, You know, of course, the classic one is to say grace uh, before a meal. Mm. Very common practice across traditions, just to take a moment to reflect on, for example, how fortunate we are to be fed, that there are hundreds of millions of people who are going hungry right at this moment. Uh, how fortunate we are to have food in front of us and to take a moment perhaps to reflect on all the countless thousands of people who work to bring this food to our plate uh, for us to, us to enjoy. So that can be powerful. I had a very, very powerful teaching on gratitude myself in the last year. My, um, my wife died very suddenly and unexpectedly uh, 10 months ago. And uh, on the last day, a friend asked, well, asked, what's your spiritual practice? And she said, I'm practicing gratitude. 
Mm. And she'd said that before, but because it was one of the last things she said, of course, it went into my mind in a very deep way. And it only took a few days after her death before I realized that when I woke up in the morning, uh, I would begin to feel the pain of her loss. Mm. And I could either let my mind go down that road and start on the train of, oh, oh how terrible, my wife has died, I'm alone, uh, poor me, and it just sucked, it felt awful. Or I could start thoughts such as, I have a roof over my head, I have resources, I have money, I have friends, I have, I'm in good health and just run through all mm. the things I could be grateful for, including the 30 wonderful, wonderful years of marriage to this incredible woman. And it made an enormous difference. Just saved mm. me so much pain. So much pain. So I have a new appreciation for gratitude myself. Uh, it's just a, a very powerful practice. And that, it just takes immense amount of courage as well to be able to to cultivate that ability to to exercise gratitude and I guess that's a result of, of the spiritual practice that you've put in over the years really helped in that in that situation. Well, you know, may, maybe Ricky, but I think it was partly self-survival. It just got very mm. clear very fast that I felt a hell of a lot better if I focused on the blessings I had rather than the lo enormous loss I, uh, I had. And it's not to you know not to say that I diminished in any way the you know what was the biggest loss of my life, and mm. but I could also wallow in that, or I could have gratitude for what we had and for the fact uh, for the many blessings I have had then and have at this moment that so many people on this planet don't. Mm. It was just <laughs> just a lot more pleasant to focus on the yeah. blessings and and to wallow in the pain. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is, um, yeah, such an important shift in mindset. And, and your example, which yeah, I really appreciate you sharing, is, is such a good example of how we can switch that mindset and it switches the, the sensation of our inner, inner universe, not in a way that pushes away the challenge, pushes away the pain, but in a way that can really serve us well, I guess, and serve us in, in the best way possible. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of, so we move on to the, the next practice, which is live it, living ethically and feeling good by doing good. And I, I guess when one starts to get more awareness and starts to cultivate and manage emotions, you then view ethics in a, in a different way. Um, what I really like is how you, you highlight the significant difference between not living ethically through guilt or because you should act this way, but actually living ethically as a means to, to cultivate skilled emotions of, such as compassion and empathy, but also as a means to awaken. Yes, and there's a, again, as in so much of uh, religion, spirituality, contemplative practice, there's an enormous difference in a mature understanding of this virtue, in this case ethics, mm. as opposed to the conventional cultural understanding. The conventional cultural understanding is 
of ethics, morality is. It's a kind of duty-bound thing. You do it because you should, and, uh, and you know it's what's required in order for people to get along, and that's true. And there's much more to it. And as one delves deeper, as one develops a contemplative practice, one discovers that ethics is actually enlightened self-interest. That living ethically not only serves others, it also serves us. And one can begin to see that at a very deep level by exploring one's own experience, perhaps in meditation, perhaps simply by reflection. Because if you recall a time when you acted unethically, when you were, for example, selfish or greedy or lost your temper with someone, if you check in to how you were feeling at that moment, what you'll find are painful, destructive motives and emotions like greed or fear or jealousy Mm. or anger. And if we act those out, we reinforce and and strengthen them. They become more powerful. They tend to take our lives over more. On the other hand, if you look inward at a time when you're feeling ethical, when you're motivated to be kind or compassionate or loving, what you find are very positive motives and emotions. Motives such as love and compassion and generosity or joy. And these not only feel good and help us do good, but when we act those out, we strengthen those. So acting ethically is actually a kind of mind training. It's a way of cultivating positive qualities and reducing negative qualities in our mind. And once you get that, then ethics ceases to be anything like self-sacrifice mm. and really becomes enlightened self-interest. And you know, it's a really interesting example of the kind of uh, psychosomatic link between ethical living and I guess living in, in congruence with our values and what we believe in. And, and when we act outside of that, you know an example of a woman who experienced pain whenever she acted outside of her values in the book and I I guess personally I for me it will manifest as anxiety Mm. so sometimes Mm -hmm. if I if I start behaving in a a certain way that isn't in line with my values I either feel anxious in the the build-up even though I kind of start to feel anxious I may say or act in a certain way and then it's followed almost by a sense of shame when that does happen Mm. um fortunately that's reduced with the awareness that's come through meditation, but I can certainly see how this ethical, or ethics in themselves are almost internal. Yes, and and the more practice we do, the more sensitive we become, the more, more we mature, the more we recognize just how destructive living unethically is, and the less we become willing to do that, to tolerate that in ourselves. It just become so obvious that we're actually hurting each, hurting not only other people but ourselves as well. Mm. So we just want to live more ethically. And it's, it's just a skillful, helpful, benevolent uh, way of living for everyone. And you know um, the two, I believe it's from, from Buddhism, the two acts of right speech, which is, can be seen as sacred speech, as being a primal creative force. So essentially being very aware of the way you use language and, and not causing harm 
or thinking about how your words can have an effect. And then in addition to that, right action, which isn't a form of sacrifice, but instead some form of enlightened self-interest. Yeah, and um, we just become more sensitive to the effects of our behavior, including our speech. And more and more we just want to speak in a way which is gentle and kind and and reflects our desire to be helpful to people. Mm. And that actually links to the next practice, which is one of concentrating and calming the mind, because uh, as we do develop a little more concentration, as the mind does become calmer and stiller, then we become more sensitive, we become more attuned to our own experience and more empathic with other people. Mm. And so these practices build on each other in a very beautiful way. And as uh, they reinforce one another. So for example, as we become more ethical, we have less to feel guilty about, less to feel anxious about. We tend to become a little more benevolent. And that in turn calms and clears the mind and lets it become easier to concentrate and to focus and to calm the mind. So these practices are actually mutually supportive and reinforcing. And maybe we should just say a little bit about the benefit of concentration. Um, this is as the fourth practice of uh, the seven practices that uh, are common across traditions and the fourth one laid out in the book of Central Spirituality, the seven central practices that it re- one quickly learns as you as you begin to pay more attention to yourself and to life that our minds are incredibly scattered. We all suffer from a kind of attentional deficit hyperactivity mm. disorder, uh, and that when the mind wanders all over the place, it's out of control, and we're, our lives are out of control. So naturally, one wants to begin to learn how to focus, how to concentrate, how to, to attend to what we want to attend to instead of what you know, toy or trinket grabs attention in the moment and whisks us away in some fantasy. Uh, so that we begin to appreciate that to be able to concentrate, to be able to hold attention on what we want is a really valuable skill. Really valuable. And so uh, it becomes clear, as it does with all these capacities, that this is something we want to develop. Yeah, and, and, it, and it also it leads on to something even more profound, which is the next practice of awakening your spiritual vision, to see clearly and recognize the sacred in all things. So I guess the more we, we can hone in and, and focus our attention on where we're at in the present moment and be mindful. It's almost as if all of a sudden there's a lot more that we notice around us. Um, And I know how you say what we see outside of us reflects what is inside. And it's almost as if through concentration, we also begin to see a lot more of the texture of our environment and almost a lot more beauty through the general quieting of, of the mind and, and focused attention. Yes, I like the word you use there, Ricky, texture. 
and you become more sensitive to the nuances. We we pick up things more sensitively, both in ourselves and in others. And actually, it's interesting, you know, advanced meditators have now demonstrated 12 capacities that psychologists once thought were impossible, which is just an extraordinary finding that that contemplative practices can develop capacities to such degrees that we used to think they were impossible. Um, And one of those is a very exquisite uh, sensitivity to other people's experience. That is, we can pick up, for example, very subtle cues in other people's facial expressions. Mm. And it... (laughs) It turns out that advanced meditators are, can pick up even more subtle cues than the, the former uh, the people who were formerly thought of as the world experts who were CIA or Central Intelligence yeah. Agency <laughs> agents who were very very much trained to do that. But you're you're right. With as we become more ethical and the mind clears, as we become less caught up in cravings to to things that aren't really worth hankering after. As we as we become more concentrated, the mind calms and clears, and of course then we're able to see more. It's mm. like uh, you know, looking at a looking down into a a lake when there's a a wind blowing across it. You know, you see a lot of waves and you see a kaleidoscopic pattern that's constantly shifting and changing. And you, that's it. It doesn't mean much. It's you know just a random, seems like a random, interesting perhaps, a random pattern of, of shifting images. But then if you come back to the lake on a day when it's when it's clear, suddenly you can you rec- find you can see into the depths of the water down perhaps to the bottoms and see this recognize the sand and fish, and you see the entire world reflected in the lake and see yourself as an intimate part of the entire world and universe. And that's a very, very different perception. It's the same with training our own perception. When our mind calms and clears, when we have some concentration, some clarity, then we can begin to see the unity of things and the way in which we are intimately linked with all people and all life. Yeah, which is is one of the most eye-opening and and fascinating experiences. And it is an experience that a lot of people will associate with psychedelics and, I guess, being under the influence of psychedelics and how that seems to have this effect but I think it is it's so important to note that with dedicated practice this idea of really experiencing oneness and a sense of connection and having an expansive mind that seems to I guess truly see the beauty and the sacred nature of the world around us rather than just to observe but to really see and kind of become one with it this is possible with spiritual practice. And I think that's, that's one of the most, um, yeah, kind of eye-opening and, and profound aspects of spirituality that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily associate with it. 
Yes, and you're drawing an important distinction there, Ricky. You used the example of psychedelics, which are very powerful and curious chemicals and can clearly induce uh, profound experiences in some some people. Uh, and are widely used, actually, in uh, a majority of traditional cultures for their spiritual value. Um, of course, but of course they can be very problematic when they're not used skillfully or they're mm. used without adequate preparation. And what they do is they induce altered states, which are temporary uh, states of mind, which can sometimes, uh, along with sometimes being very problematic for some people, can be very valuable for others. But there's not a lot of control over them. And they're temporary. And what spiritual and contemplative practices are designed to do are to train the mind so that one can have those kinds of or similar profound insights and understandings and ways of seeing that but can have them in a sustained way that they can become part of one's life and inform one's life and transform oneself uh, rather than just being temporary insights that come and go. Mm. And that's a very important distinction. And I guess th that slow, gradual process also helps whoever it is practicing it's different techniques. It helps them, I guess, to embrace the inner shadow. As, as Jung would call it, this, this kind of darkness that if, you're just, if you just leap straight into, it's completely terrifying and, and will, of course, have quite an unnerving effect. But it seems to me, and from, from what you mentioned in the book, these practices gently move us along and we, we face up to these um, crevices of mind and, and even deeper than that, these kind of unconscious fears almost that come to the surface, but in a way that is manageable. Yeah, um, certainly that's, you know, you were drawing the comparison with psychedelics, and that's, those are some of the very painful experiences can arise with psychedelics, because they do bring to the surface aspects of mind, including fears that, uh, that people haven't dealt with, and they can be quite overwhelming. Uh, with contemplative practices, you're right, the, the difficult experiences do tend to come to the fore, and they can be challenging, don't want to underestimate that, but they do emerge in a more uh, gentle and, and uh, controlled way, and ideally, as we practice, we develop uh, personal skills for working with difficult experiences, and, and are, they're not as overwhelming, mm. uh, you know, but we need to emphasize again that spiritual contemplative practice can be very challenging and sometimes uh, just are difficult experiences that need to be mm. worked with. And what one comes to recognize is that when difficult experiences emerge, perhaps old traumas or, or guilt or pain of one kind or another, that's actually an opportunity to heal them. When they come in, if we if we allow them to come into the light of awareness, that awareness turns out to be healing. And yeah. as long as we stuff them out of awareness, as long as we repress them, stick them in, you know, 
try to stuff them back into the unconscious. Well, they just remain there. What your general principle is, what you're unwilling to experience in your mind sticks around till you are willing to experience it. And what you're unwilling to experience runs your life. So yeah. there's a real healing power in developing awareness and using that awareness to um, allow difficult memories and traumas, etc., to cut to to come into to be recognized, mm. acknowledged, accepted, and thereby healed. And there's a certain wisdom that develops with that, which actually brings us to the next practice. That is, one sees, one understands, and this is part of what wisdom is. One sees and understands the way the mind works, the way one, one, you know, we work. And that is a very important and healing aspect of wisdom, just understanding how the mind works. Mm. And I, I note in that section on, on cultivating spiritual intelligence, you note the, um, the, I think it's known as the hero's return, this idea of a lot of sages throughout the, the times who withdraw into that inner world to experience it and to understand it and then return with added wisdom. But I guess part of that is this first awakening moment, this moment where someone decides, I want to explore, I want to delve deeper and I want to answer some questions that I have. That, from, from my perspective and from the perspective of mental health, I do see uh, mental health conditions, if you call them conditions, but experiences such as depression or anxiety, as potential opportunities for awakening in in and i could possibly be that i'm adding meaning to my own experience but in moments of depression when the the form of identity the form of self-image almost disintegrates in a way and the way you perceive the world is so visceral and and so unavoidable that you have to say well i'm currently creating a hell of my own, you know, my own perception. What is the opposite of this? If I'm capable of creating this hell, can I create this heaven? And for me, it leads me to believe that depression, anxiety, or even psychosis on some level can be part of a process of awakening. Yeah, and um, it's a delicate balance, and I think you pointed to this, and that is, on the one hand, wanting to acknowledge how very, very difficult these experiences and, and issues can be, and at the same time, a significant, um, um, what is so important is how we respond to them. If we, it's very easy and quite understandable to get lost into them and to and to feel helpless in their face, but if as, if someone like yourself has uh, some back has sufficient understanding, has a little wisdom to recognize that, okay, this is something my mind is creating. There has to be has to have to be some things I can do that will help and heal. Um, then yes. 
then difficult experiences, including even intense anxiety, grief, uh, depression, can be learning experiences. Mm. And of course, during those difficult times, we want to call on all the re- possible resources we can use, good friends, counselors, therapists, medication sometimes if needed, um, uh, our contemplative practices, uh, yoga, exercise, diet, anything and everything that will help. That's yeah. part of wisdom in working with difficult experiences. We use everything we possibly can to help ourselves and one of the things we do is we try to learn from the experience because as you're pointing to these difficult experiences can be pointers to parts of our psyche parts of ourselves which we haven't looked at haven't acknowledged haven't haven't worked with sufficiently so the ideal is i understand it is as you said ricky to to try and to recognize our own capacity for changing our experience, to recognize our own uh, power, and to or, and to draw on all the resources we can and to learn for help with these difficult things mm. and to learn from them. Yeah, and and, and I guess as well is uh, yeah, I, I like what you you say about the approach to almost a holistic approach to overall wellness and saying, what can I do? I can take all of these tools, spiritual practice being one of them, you know, good nutrition exercise, all of the change of environment that, that really, really help. And using that to, to give yourself, I guess, the best resources that you can have to challenge yeah. and to, yeah. to deal and manage with, with these troubling emotions. Yeah. Um, that brings us to the last practice, which is contribution and service. And the general idea here is that wonderful things we discover is that when we contribute to others, we feel good. And this mm. has been something which has been emphasized by uh, spiritual teachers, sages, saints, contemplatives for thousands of years. But the research is now bearing them out. <laughs> and the researchers talk of, for example, helpers high. When we help yeah. other people, we feel good. We get high. <laughs> and that, and, uh, uh, you know, service, contributing to others is just, it turns out to be intensely satisfying. Now, we need to draw a distinction between the kind of compulsive helping of uh, a superego-driven a compulsive helper and mm-hmm. a more mature uh, spiritual motive to 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 share one's good fortune with people in whatever way one can. There's that the first there's a distinction. The first one that compulsive I have to help is more a, a guilt and superego driven motive, whereas the the spiritual contribute joy of service comes out of a sense of fullness and wholeness and a recognition that to the extent I can help others to that extent, I benefit. It's enlightened mm. self-interest. It's not self-sacrifice. And that's just a crucial distinction. And it's most 
That was most profound. Uh, you know, it comes back to something you were alluding to, Ricky, and that is that our, psych- our difficulties, including our psychological challenges, can even become ways in which we can contribute and serve others. For example, you've, you talked about the fact that your anxiety and depression were very challenging for you, and here you are using them as a way to help other people. You know, you, it was working with those difficulties that motivated you to create this podcast, to create the, to, you know, to share what you'd learned with other people. And that's mm-hmm. a beautiful example that even our, some of our difficulties can be used to benefit others, which really transforms our understanding of the, yeah. of the suffering in some ways. It's like, yeah, that was hell. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah. Wow, it's allowed me to do all this. Yeah, and it's it's very very kind of you to to make that link, and certainly giving that sense of giving back and that that joy in service and and moving into coaching and the work on mind that ego. Nothing else is, has given or provided more meaning into the suffering and provided more reasoning almost. And an understanding that I went through what I went through for this exact reason and this purpose. And I guess that ties together all the, the spiritual aspects of transcendence and something higher. And it keeps me going. It keeps me going when times do get tough. This idea that the suffering that has been experienced can be understood and it can be translated and then hopefully be used to to kind of um, alleviate, to any extent, alleviate symptoms in, in others. And I think, in, in yeah, I guess in, in dark moments, I did think to myself, if, if possibly just one person can benefit from this, then, then there's a purpose there. So I can, I can absolutely vouch for joy of service. Beautiful, beautiful. That's uh, an exquisite example. And... Uh... Yeah, thank you, Ricky. I mean, that's that's just a very fine example of using of transforming one's pain into contribution, and it's something I I've noticed is a characteristic of, uh, of truly wise people that they use mm-hmm. their you know listen, if you listen I've had the privilege of listening to a number of teachers, and one of the things you notice is they talk about their pain and they talk about ways in which they've been able to use it for the benefits of others. So. Just one more question. I really, really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. And I just want to leave you with with one more question. So I recently turned 28 years old on recent birthday. And I'd like to ask you, if you're looking back on your 28-year-old self, what advice would you give in terms of spiritual practice? Well, Ricky, I wish I'd known about spiritual practice at age 28. I didn't even begin these things <laughs> until my 30s. So, Go ahead, start. So then. you're way ahead of the, way ahead yeah. of the game. <laughs> Just but, meditate would be the answer, I guess. <laughs> um, well, I'd say carry on. Uh, I'd say do whatever you can to, to continue and deepen your practice. Um, to open to the fullness of yourself and to life. Um, 
and uh, celebrate your good fortune in being able to, mm-hmm. in having all these practices available, which you know, a few decades ago they weren't. When I was starting out, it was like, it was, who heard, of, you know, you barely heard of meditation. So, so gratitude for good fortune and and diving in as deeply and fully as you can, opening to life in all its joys and pains, and doing what you're doing, which is using your your experience to contribute to others through your teaching and this podcast. I'd say go for it. On that absolutely delightful and beautiful note, thank you very much, Roger, for being part of the Mind That Ego podcast. And of course, you're welcome back anytime. Well, thank you very much. I wish you all the best of it. And thank you so much for uh, giving us the opportunity of talking about the practices uh, that are outlined in Essential Spirituality, the seven central practices, because they, they are powerful, they are transformative. And thank you for the opportunity of getting them out. And thank you for listening to the Mind That Ego podcast. You can find extra content on Facebook or sign up to my mailing list at www.mindthatego.com. Until next time, be well.